You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of James. Here's Nate. Well, James, of course, in this epistle has talked to us of the reality of faith and a life of faith and really a life that demonstrates the faith that exists inside of a believer. Uh, James, in the way he describes it, is he says, listen, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, James, his life was a representation of the work that he professed to have internally. That reality within uh, led him to a reality without. And for him, uh, really, it's it's as if every single event in life for a believer, if approached by faith, is a completely different response than if it is approached without faith and just really by sight. I mean, that is evidenced, of course, when he launches the letter after his brief greeting by saying, Account it all joy, brothers, when you fall into trials of various kinds. That is a very non-sight-based response to trials. That's a faith-based response. We have faith in the Lord. There are things that we cannot see. Yet there is this perspective inside of us that says, you know, this trial can be used for God's great good and purposes in my life. And so I will rejoice here, even though the trial doesn't bring me joy, I have an internal rejoicing over what Christ can produce in my life as a result of this trial. And on and on, James describes responses to different things that we see, not with our sight, but with faith. You see a poor man and a wealthy man come into your assembly. You're to respond to each one of them in the same way. You're not to show partiality. Only faith can do this kind of thing. And in this last little section, James 5 verse 13, all the way to the end of the book in verse 20, James is going to give us really here, I think, a list of different events that when they occur in our lives, whether it's suffering or rejoicing or sickness or sin or a burden that we have in our hearts or even someone that we know in Christ wandering from the truth, there's of course the natural response and we could fill in the blank on what that what might look like for each one of us. But then there is the response of faith. And that's where we want to be. And James starts out this section by asking three questions, really, that highlight three different events that often occur in a person's life. And then he tells us what the faith response is. The three questions are, is anyone among you suffering? Number one, is anyone among you cheerful? Number two, and is anyone among you sick? Number three, and there's a faith response to all three of these states of life. Let's start out with the first question in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Now, I would submit to you that really it's only by an understanding of the gospel message 
that a person would ever respond to suffering with prayer. You know, I think for many people, the perspective would be, if they don't see the gospel, the perspective would be, well, okay, there's a God. And this God is supposed to be strong and powerful. He's supposed to have the ability to deliver me from my suffering. And yet here I am suffering. So why would I pray to this God who is able to relieve my suffering, yet for whatever reason, isn't relieving my suffering? And that's, of course, a view that completely misses out on the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that we have a God who did see our suffering, was grieved by our suffering, and set about on a wonderful plan of salvation in order to rid all people who would believe on the cross of Christ, to rid all of them from suffering forever by suffering more than all of us combined in his own body on that cross. And so when I'm suffering and I remember the gospel, it'll cause me to cry out to the Lord in prayer. And so when I pray in this kind of way, I remember the Lord. I remember his grace. I remember the cross. And of course, the hope in this suffering is that I'll be rescued from my suffering by God. But at the very least, and this has been my experience so often, that I'll be refreshed by my Father, by my Savior, by my friend. And so to call out to the Lord and to believe that he hears our voice. God invites us in Psalm 50 verse 15, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. I find that many Christians are a little nervous about calling out to the Lord in times of suffering, almost feeling as if they don't deserve to ask the Lord to help them. But he's your father in heaven, your you know, his in Christ. You're a co-heir with Christ if you're a believer. He wants you to run to him. And as we see here in James 5.13, has invited you. If you're suffering, pray. Now, the second question that he asks is also there in verse 13. He says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Now, I'm sure there are a lot of different natural responses to seasons of cheer in a person's life. You know, you get good news, a promotion, a, a relationship that is bringing you great joy, uh, a financial windfall or blessing, a graduation, you know, just these wonderful, a birth of a child, just these wonderful things in life that occur. There are reasons in this life to be cheerful and rejoice. God is so good to us that even though this is a fallen and broken world, there's just really a, a lot of a, a, a remnant of the good thing that God created originally. So there are at times in our lives great reasons to be cheerful. And I know for me, if it weren't for the gospel message, it weren't for my relationship with God, I think a natural response to cheerfulness would just be for me to be uh, constantly thinking of the thing that has brought me cheer. But what James tells us is that instead of 
you know, thinking continually about the thing that has brought us cheer, we're to sing praise to the one who has caused the cheer in our lives in the first place and to, you know, celebrate God himself to sing praise. We already learned in chapter one of James's epistle in verse 17 that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So these good gifts in our lives and perfect gifts in our lives, where do they come from? Well, they come from the father. And when there is a reason to rejoice, when you sing praise to God over that thing, what it does is it, I think in one sense, reminds you of where the blessing has come from in the first place. It's great to be cheerful over the blessings, but it's even more wonderful to celebrate the blesser, the one who has given the blessings in the first place. And it's such a wonderful gift that I think God has given to us in the singing of praise. Because when I do, my experience has simply been this, that the reason for cheer and thankfulness has just been cemented into my uh, heart through that time of singing praise unto the Lord. Now, I should mention, of course, that it's an intensely biblical thing to sing to the Lord. You see it. Uh, from Genesis to Revelation, God's people sing to him. In times of victory, we sing to him, as when Moses and the people of Israel crossed the Red Sea. Before times of great mission, as when Jesus sang a hymn with his disciples before he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. But we are to sing. Paul said in Ephesians 5 verse 19 that we're to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with our heart. And so it's a wonderful thing. It's a godly thing to sing to the Lord and rejoice over him. I, I know it's a very, you know, subjective kind of thing, but if you were to ask me the question, when was the first time in your life that you ever experienced or felt the presence of God? I think that I would have to go back and recall a time when I was about 13 or 14 years old and was at a winter camp with a bunch of other young people and the snow was falling outside and we were inside, the heater was on and they were singing songs to the Lord in a time of worship. And I'd probably been in hundreds of environments like that before and had maybe at times sung the words in a fairly empty kind of way or perhaps even with sincerity, but just no, you know, nothing was really happening uh, for me personally, except the truth just kind of getting its way down inside of my heart. But on that particular moment, as we sang, I experienced and sensed the presence of God like I'd never experienced the presence of God before. It is good to sing praise to the Lord. Now, the third question that James asks is the question in verse 14, is anyone among you sick? And the thing here is that in the first two questions, he had a very brief response. If you're suffering, pray. And if you're cheerful, then sing praise. But here he has a longer response. He says, if that's the case, then let him call for the elders of the church and let them 
pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, I think it's important to wrestle with what these two verses are actually teaching. So let's take it line by line here. First of all, who particularly is James addressing when he says, is anyone among you sick? Is he talking about, you know, just any kind of more, from our perspective, minor illness? It's all the same in the sight of God. But is he talking about a more minor illness? You know, you get a cold and you go to the elders of the church for prayer. Well, the reality is that at least in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, when this word is used, it's used to describe people who were very, very ill. People who were laid out waiting for Jesus. They were so sick. The centurion's servant who was ready to die. Lazarus had this description upon his life. And in the book of Acts, a woman named Tabitha who eventually died and then was raised, she was sick with this same kind of word. And so it seems as if this is indicating a pretty significant sickness. All right, so if anyone among you is sick, there's a fairly significant sickness that has entered into uh, your life. And, you know, I think that it bears being said because the reality is we're all sick in one sense or another because we're all dying. None of us is going to live forever. But he says, you know, is anybody sick? Something significant perhaps, although I don't think that there's reason to be dogmatic about that. And I think that if you have a minor illness and would like to follow James five fourteen and 15, that's absolutely fine. So if that's the case, though, if that's who you are, then what are you supposed to do? Well, he says in verse 14, let him call for the elders of the church. They'll pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, the question really surrounds what it means for the elders to anoint this very ill person in the name of the Lord. We understand the first two parts of it. Call for the elders of the church. Notice that you are the one responsible for calling. Don't expect the pastors in your churches to, you know, automatically know whenever you fall into sickness. It's the responsibility of the person to call for the elders. So ideally, plural of the church and elders is simply synonymous with pastors. So these elders come and then they'll pray over him. All right. So we understand that that's not a difficult thing to understand. And I, I think I know at least in our context in my local church, someone will uh, at times do this immediately following a church service. And we'll do it right there at the end of a service and all of that. Or at times someone is bedridden, they call us and we go to them, whether in the hospital or hospice or at home, 
And then for some people, it's a little more private and personal. They'd like to do it at a, at a different time where not as many people are around. So they make an appointment, but there are various ways to fulfill this idea of calling for the elders of the church and the elders pray over him. But the real question stems around the phrase anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So what does that mean? Now, some, and I think that they have, you know, a little bit of a prejudice with this interpretation because there are some who don't believe that the Holy Spirit will ever heal anybody in this present age, that the work of the Spirit in that way was uh, fulfilled and finished at the canon of Scripture, which, by the way, I've actually seen the records of Christians in the second and third century, of course, after the canon of Scripture, who record times of great healings and people being touched physically and all of that. So uh, I think it should be obvious to us that the Holy Spirit still does move and can move in this way. But if you have that interpretation of scripture, that scheme, well, what do you do with this? Uh, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. And so some people think that what's happening here is that James is merely just pointing out that in that era, oil and sort of a, a medicinal rub uh, with oil would be, uh, you know, a great way to find healing. So what James is maybe saying in their scheme is he's saying pray for it and also medicate it. And of course, that's great. You know, in the New Testament, we're it's just fine for us to use medicine. Sometimes that's the very way in which God wants to heal a person. He's created science. He's created the mind. He's created the ability within mankind to discover and test and, and uh, find these antidotes for various forms of illness and sickness. And uh, God ultimately gets the credit uh, for that. But I think James is talking about something a little more than just saying, hey, pray for it and medicate it uh, in this particular uh, passage. Others think that James really isn't saying anything about real sickness, but he's talking about spiritual sickness. And sometimes in the epistles, this word is used to dis to denote a spiritual weakness. And so... The idea then would be, well, hey, you know, if you're struggling and feeling discouraged in your walk, call for the elders uh, and they'll pray for you. And in that, usually that interpretation, they say, and the oil is not real. It's just a symbolic thing. We want the Holy Spirit to refresh you and encourage you and things like that. And certainly that as well is a great New Testament idea. If you're really struggling in your walk with the Lord, it's great to ask pastors to pray for you that you might be re refreshed in the Holy Spirit. But I tend to think that James isn't trying to be cute at all and that he's not trying to give us some, you know, weird phrase that actually means something very, uh, you know, more straightforward. I think he's being very straightforward. And I think that he's saying that if someone is very sick in the church, then they come to the elders and the elders will pray for them, put a little bit of oil on them, not a medicinal thing, but just sort of a symbolic kind of thing, and we'll pray for them. And I don't know why, to tell you the truth.
I really don't. I mean, perhaps the oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. I mean, we know that in the scripture, the, the oil of the Spirit is often spoken of. So perhaps that's the reality, just sort of understanding, hey, listen, we'll pray for you, but unless the Holy Spirit helps you, nothing's really going to happen here. Maybe that's what be, what's being said. Maybe that oil is like a point of contact for a person to, for their faith to be kicked into gear and to be activated. But this is what I think he, he wants us to do. You just put a little bit of oil on someone in obedience to God's word and you put your hands on them and you pray for them uh, and ask the Lord to help them in this time of sickness and in this time of distress. One thing that we know for certain is we know that James is not saying, because notice his confidence in verse 15. He says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. That's very confident. And the Lord will raise him up. Again, very confident. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So again, very confident. Uh, that God is going to move when a person prays in this kind of way. So what does that mean? Uh, I think we have to understand, and of course we all would easily believe if we just think about this for a second, we would believe that James is not saying that healing from any illness is always just a prayer of faith away. I mean, if we just thought about that logically, then, you know, there's a good chance James would still be alive today. Because if that's what he meant, then why didn't he, when he got sick, just pray a prayer of faith or have someone pray a prayer of faith and just, you know, become well? You know, we all understand that our bodies will expire. They will die. Even if the Lord touches us and heals us in this life, it's very temporary. We're setting our attention on the healing that is going to last forever. But, what does he mean? The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. He doesn't say he'll heal the one who's sick, but will save the one who is sick. That word means uh, many different things. The, the word save could be to rescue, to save, to heal. And so uh, what seems to be happening here is that James is saying, if you do this, if when you're sick, faith turns your sickness into elder prayer, and you call for the elders of your church and they anoint you with oil and you they pray for you, God will do something good. And sometimes that something good is a physical healing. But when you're sick, you need so much more than physical healing, don't you? You need wisdom on how to handle the sickness if you're supposed to attack it uh, medically or not. You need encouragement because it's very discouraging. Uh, you need <clears throat> strength to be able to endure because your body has been weakened. You need the support of other believers who know what it is that you're going through. So I think that it's good for believers to say, no matter what, when I go and pray in this way, God will produce something good as I pray that prayer of faith in this kind of way. So let your sicknesses be turned by faith into the prayer of the elders. Now, he says at the end of that little statement, he says, you know, because if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. And then in verse 16, 
He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So part of this whole process is the confession of sins and the forgiveness of sins from God. And of course, in connection with sickness, we would have to say, well, it's true that all sickness is ultimately connected to sin in general. You know, when Adam sinned, he introduced sickness into the world. So ultimately, sickness and disease, it does have some kind of connection to sin. But there are also times that our own sin personally can lead to sickness. Sometimes that sickness is just uh, the result of you know, some kind of wild living, you know, a sexually transmitted disease or your liver begins to fail because you've consumed too much alcohol, you know, things like that. But there are times even in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty, Revelation 3, verse 22, where God himself will directly touch a person's body negatively as a result of sin. But here he says, what you're to do is confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Faith turns sin into confession. You know, my natural man turns sin into hiding and shame. I don't confess it. I want to cover it up. But Faith will confess, and confession is one of the greatest gifts that God has given to the church, the ability to keep short accounts, to get right, and to experience practical, experiential forgiveness and righteousness from God. Now, in saying all of this, James then goes on in verse 16 and says that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. You know, he's saying it in the context of, you know, you confess your sin and you get to experience some practical righteousness or the elders of the church who are supposed to live righteous lives, they pray and you have to believe that there's great power when a righteous person is praying and crying out to God. And I think that's a great question to ask our own hearts. Do I believe in the power of prayer, the prayer of a righteous person? Do I believe that it's effective? Do I believe that it works? Well, James, just to hammer this point home a little bit, gives us an illustration from the life of Elijah. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, the wonderful thing here is fascinating because he says Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. I don't normally think of myself in the same camp with Elijah, but he was just a normal man. A normal man with a burden, by the way. Notice that he prayed fervently that it might not rain. Why would a person pray that it might not rain? Well, I believe personally that Elijah came across passages in the Pentateuch that declared that when, a, when the nation of Israel, if they went into idolatry, then God was going to make the heavens bronze and withhold the dew. And I, I believe that as he looked around and saw the worship of Baal, his heart was grieved and he saw the word of God, the promise of God and said, God, I pray that this would come to pass, that revival might come upon the land. I would rather have it be dry physically, but rain spiritually. So faith 
takes burdens, things that we see, and turns them into fervent prayer before God. Now, James closes out this epistle in verse 19 by saying, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, what a beautiful phrase, let him know, verse 20, that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, people believe different things about these two verses. I believe personally that James is talking about people in the church who seemingly were walking with the Lord for a period of time, whether they were genuine believers or uh, just professed to know the Lord, but really didn't internally. Only God knows, but they were there and then they wandered. And when that happens, James says that if you bring that person back, you've saved a sinner from his wandering, his soul from death, and you'll cover a multitude of sins. You've, you see, what faith does with a person who wanders from the truth is we try to rescue them. We make the phone calls. We set up the coffee appointments. We stop by the home. We do whatever we can to snatch a person from the error of their ways rather than allowing them to persist in their rebellion. And certainly there comes a point where you have to let a person do what a person is going to do. But I think we should understand that faith wants to rescue those who are rebelling against the Lord. Faith wants to save people uh, from uh, their own behavior and their own selves. And so that's what faith does. And with that, James's epistle is completed. No flowery close, no greetings from anyone. It closes just as quickly as it began. And James is finished. And so am I. God bless you. And amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.